podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Two weeks ago, there was some cautious optimism around Old Trafford for a rejuvenated squad, a changed identity and a new era at Manchester United. Two weeks later, that has quickly dissipated as United's quest to rebuild has started with back-to-back defeats riddled with familiar mistakes and a continuation of last season's low points. On Saturday, Eric Ten Hag's side were humbled inside 35 minutes by Brentford as the Dutchman's introduction to the Premier League proves to be a baptism of fire. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Manchester United weekly podcast where we'll dig into some of the details of United's latest defeat to the Bees as well as what it might mean for the bigger picture for the rest of the season. It's not the usual voice starting this week's episode as Harry is away enjoying a trip to Budapest and luckily for him, managing to avoid some of the reaction to the debacle in West London. So instead it falls to me and our guest this week, Kane Smith of United District, to have the great job of dissecting that horror show against Brentford. Before we properly get into it though, here's a quick summary from Harry with his thoughts on Saturday's game. Jack and Kane, I thought I'd give you some quick thoughts on uh, what I judged from the game in the uh, in the highlights or the extended highlights that I watched having been fortunate enough to miss it and I mean there's so much more wider context to talk about this game as I'm sure you'll dive into and uh, as me and Jack spoke about over the summer and last season and also in the episode after the defeat to Brighton that uh, there's a lot on the pitch stuff that's a problem but this all stems from uh, well the rot starts at the top as the famous banner says so I'm sure you'll talk about that in more detail and we will certainly be talking about that plenty more throughout the season. But just in terms of the game, the, the way that Brentford smartly saw what United had done poorly against Brighton and took full advantage and saw that way of that, that playing out from the back just didn't work. You had Brian and Bemo on, on Martinez, Tony on Maguire and Jensen on Eriksen, which I thought was really key because it stopped United from progressing at all. And meant there was space for Brentford to counter-attack into. Um, I mean, the first goal, that's, forget that, that's silly and ridiculous, and I'm sure you'll talk about that, but look at the second goal and the third and the fourth. United are just terrible in transition, as we were under Ranić, as we could be under Solskjaer, and it was kind of the thing that Ranić really pointed out. The difficulty now, I think, and one of the key things that I don't know, I've been lucky enough to not have to read all the reaction, but I assume this is being spoken about, that Eric Tanag is a possession manager, but without the quality in the team to enact that style. So how does he now approach the next few weeks? It's kind of what we predicted, that there'd be a painful process to bed this style in. But this is more painful than I think we expected or predicted. We knew there might be mistakes from De Gea or poor goals conceded, but like this, no, um, it's worse than we thought and quicker than we thought as well. And on top of that, I think another really key issue is the fact that the team doesn't have the mentality right now to cope with conceding a poor goal. So one is followed by two and then three. And you saw the second half, United didn't concede any. And that should not be a positive that we're taking out of this. But it's a fair point. Once Ten Hag was able to get into them and make some changes, then United's defence wasn't quite so appalling. But the team doesn't have that mentality on the pitch. It's fragile. And David Hare spoke about it post-match. The team is fragile. It doesn't have the confidence. And I think that mean, that is the biggest on pitch, just solely football related, forget the transfers and whatever, that's the biggest challenge Ten Hag has in terms of implementing his style on this United team is the faith from the players and the mentality from the players is just not there right now. 
anyway i'll let you get on and and you know last i'll be listening to see uh hear what your opinions are and whether you agree with me on that Kane, it's great to have you here, despite this uh, situation that we find ourselves in. Yeah. Before we uh, before we dive into some of the finer details of of Saturday's game, do you want to? You've had a couple of days now to to reflect on it. it. Can sometimes help calm us down a little bit, give us some more sort of rational thoughts on the game. How are you? How are you feeling about United? How they approached the Brentford game and, and what we saw on Saturday? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jack. But I mean, it could be a a better week. But yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> I think I have to. After Brighton, we kind of thought that it probably wasn't going to get worse than that, but it did with the trip to Brentford. I think the reaction post-match has been quite bad, like just quite typically bad from the entire fan base. It's a bit bleak, especially considering, as you mentioned, it was looking so positive yeah. throughout pre-season. And it's hard to judge because in these games, especially in the Brentford game, which we'll get onto, that we've just seen so many individual mistakes, which has made it a bit difficult to analyse the team properly. But there's still a lot, a lot that evidently needs to be done to this side. Yeah, I think that that's something that makes it even more challenging, isn't it, to to figure out sort of where we are as a team at the moment, because. In the grand scheme of things, when you actually go back and look at most of the goals, pretty much all of them that we've conceded are down to, you know, one or two individuals just being in the wrong place or making really bad mistakes. Although it is a coach's job to minimise that, there are just things, some things you can't legislate for. You know, you can't legislate for De Gea letting that first goal slip between his fingers. But as a coach, it is also your job to, you know, make sure that the team is strong enough to, to bounce back from that. And from what we've heard from De Gea himself and in from journalists since the, the Brighton game in, in particular, it sounds like the squad have really kind of reverted to a lot of what we saw last season, which I think was the worry and that we all thought, you know, that was as bad as it could get and maybe we're seeing that it actually actually wasn't. To to kind of go back to the, the start of the Brentford game, United kind of set up with a 4-3-3, a little bit different to last week against Brighton. What did you think of the way we set up Kane, Kane and, and sort of what that meant for the way that the game panned out? Well, I thought the the main player in the setup, in the reason for the change of setup, was Ericsson. and it was it seemed like we were trying to see if he can play that deeper role as the as ball playing number six, and it was just very very difficult against a high pressing um, Brentford team who obviously know, like from last season they kind of know the strengths and weaknesses of that of of Christian Eriksson. So I think that was what Tenag probably was trying to envision, envision before the game, maybe try and get a bit more control in, in the fixture away from home with a player who can play um, under pressure usually, but potentially he's not... You, you kind of noticed for the, first, for the second goal, sorry, and for an incident beforehand where Harry Maguire ended up getting a, a book in, He's not quite used to getting the ball in those situations where he is the deepest lying midfielder and under pressure by multiple different players at, at, at times. It was quite um, a difficult watch, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I, I think just quickly to, to pick on what you're saying there, like the that difference between playing under pressure potentially as the deepest midfielder and often facing your own goal versus being under pressure in a slightly more advanced role, it is it is a big difference because if you're under pressure, say in a slightly more advanced midfield role 
sure, you're going to be under pressure in terms of your options going forward, but it's quite rare that you're ever not going to be able to sort of just turn back and have an easy pass back to the centre-backs. You know, and that, for a player like Ericsson, or even, let's say, Bruno Fernandes, if he was in that position, it does make a big difference in how you have to react to being put under that kind of pressure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I do think as well, there's a, one, one thing that I wanted to note, the role of Diego Dallo in the game. And he's, he's a question, it's, it's such a strange situation with him because he might have been, the, apart from, maybe apart from Jadon Sancho and Anthony Martial, might have been the most impressive player throughout pre-season. It seemed like his kind of role, which was developing over the course of those games, seemed like it could have quite a big importance to Ten Hag's style. Obviously, moving into that kind of inverted role, which we've seen other teams, such as um, Manchester City, obviously used to great effect. But it just seems like his, and it is like kind of what you mentioned a minute ago, where under pressure, these players seem to be reverting to old habits. And when there is the pressure of that Brentford winger, that Brentford midfielder, yeah, it, it doesn't seem like his touch is as tight. It doesn't seem like he's kind. He's still making some nice progressive moves, but I don't think it's as impressive as as impressive as we were seeing in pre-season. Obviously, mistakes happen at times, but you've got to kind of assess the situation, like you said. And that's kind of something that the whole team, Dallo included, De Gea, Fred, um, just so many players kind of was assessing situations poorly and then making the bad decision afterwards. Yeah, and I, I think that in some ways is, is a harder thing to fix. Like if it was just the case of De Gea, like take, take the second goal, for example. And I think the second goal spoke to so many of the tactical issues that we had against Brentford. If it was a simply a case of De Gea just misplaces that pass, he passes it a couple of yards to the right or left, that's obviously a really bad mistake and will probably lead to a goal. But it's sort of something that you can accept that you will probably improve. You know, he's a, he's a professional footballer. He might not be one of the best goalkeepers with his feet, but, you know, you can improve on his passing and make sure that De Gea from a dead ball can have be a more accurate passer. Actually teaching them to make better decisions in the heat of the moment is a much harder thing because... It's so much more fluid. It's so much more dynamic, and you're you have so much less control over it. You know, those moments are about being able to read where your player is, where the opposition player is, but also not where they are in that moment, but sort of predicting where they're going to go and anticipating what's going to happen next. And that's what the best goalkeepers are so good at, and what I think De Gea really lacks in. You know, that second goal, Ten Hag mentioned it after the game. If you're playing against the team that wants to press really high, and that's what Brentford were clearly doing, they were like probably more so than I've seen a, a team, especially a, a lower t- lower half of the table team, do against United in recent years. They really sold out for the press. And it was almost man-to-man in, in midfield, especially with Janssen on Eriksen. Would, Janssen would just follow Eriksen pretty much the whole way as he went deeper towards United's own goal. And, you know, that obviously has its advantages, as we saw for the second goal. But what it, do- what it does, the trade-off, is that it leaves space in midfield for us to exploit. And as soon as you see that happening... The change should have been from United. And this is something that should come from the players, not from the coach, because it's very obvious to see. The, the shift then should be, OK, you still bring Ericsson and Fred deep. You still split the centre-backs wide. But then instead of having the full-backs very deep and off to the side of the pitch, you instead push them high and wide. You get the forward, the, the wide forward coming slightly deeper and slightly infield. And then you end up with Shaw and Darlow and, and either full-backs pushed up maybe 30 yards ahead of their uh, own goal line. So they are now an out ball for, for De Gea. You get Sancho and Rashford a little bit inside, a little bit deeper, so they are also an out ball. 
And yeah, these will have to be aerial passes, but they're not long balls as such. They're not just hoofs from De Gea. They are calculated longer passes to get past that, that basically bank of four players that Brentford were pushing up. I, ironically, the team that I remember doing this really well, Kane, is, uh, is Spurs under, under Pochettino. So, so often... How many times would you used to see Lloris playing those sort of thirty-yard passes out to either fullback, and it would get Spurs attacking when they were playing on trying to play out under pressure? And it's again, it's something that obviously would need to be worked on on the training ground, but in game, those are decisions that have to be made by the players. I saw someone say it's a long pass, not a long ball. And, uh, exactly. It's, exactly. It, it's quite especially worrying considering the failure we've had in these first two games it's almost going to become a blueprint of how to play against this United side while they're transitioning. And I feel like we'll see it more and more. It's just like, as the opening months come on, like these teams who you might not expect to press so highly against United might try it because they know that we're still adapting. And they do, does, do the centre-backs and I, I, it's, I guess it's more so De Gea from the situations you're talking about, but do, do our players have those... Those, lo- those long passes into the kind of fullbacks moving forward to evade that pressure because that's the realistically until we are at the point where the movements and the rotations and f- the different aspects like that which will take longer to kind of perfect are there that is our main option to evade that press if we cannot do that consistently then it's just going to be so there's going to be too many turnovers and then that and then you've got the problem of a defensive transition where United are (laughs) the the worst two words that a United fan can hear because it's just the kryptonite of the club in the past two years yeah and it seems like it's kind of continuing and there needs to be a solution really and Ten Hag needs to find it sooner rather than later. Like this really just speaks to the this sort of dilemma, the predicament that Ten Hag finds himself in, right? Because he clearly saw against Brighton there was a problem with playing out from the back with McTominay and Fred in midfield. Ten Hag has clearly seen that, made the change to Ericsson, which on paper I didn't mind. By the way, I'm not criticising that team selection. I'm criticising the way that we sort of reacted to it in the game. But I don't think that team selection in itself was a problem. But... You know, you then move to Ericsson as a deeper midfielder alongside Fred, fine. But you've then got only one number six. And even Fred is not really a natural number six. He's, he's sort of a, a six and a half, I would say. And, and then you end up with him and Ericsson as the two deeper midfielders. Neither Ericsson, you know, obviously not known for his defensive work. Fred, okay, but scruffy defensively. Despite the fact that we've added on paper, you know, better skills on the ball with Ericsson when you're still losing the ball as often as we were, you then put yourself in even more defensive transition, transitional moments. But instead of having McTominay there, you have Ericsson. And so you've, you've not gained anything on the one hand and you've worsened the, what you're going to have to deal with as a result of still losing the ball so much. And that, that is the problem for Ten Hag, right? It's you solve one problem, but that creates another. And that, I think, goes for a lot of tactical issues that are in our squad at the moment. Yeah, one, one other thing that I kind of wanted to mention in the game, which I don't think we've mentioned his name maybe once or twice, but J- Jaden Sancho, just, he's kind yeah. of, it, it, it's kind of, and I think it's kind of related to Diego Dallo's problems because I wrote a piece of how Dallo's impressive preseason kind of complement, it, it was so clear that he was complimenting Sancho so much throughout those games. And without Dallo there, because 
of the and I think it's a result of the pressure that we're getting and he's having to do so many more defensive transitions that it's harder to get on the overlap harder to attack but he is kind of it's it's back to that isolated right hand side it seems where you're not we're not really seeing much of him and when we are it's kind of in bits a bit isolated not many runners and he's not doing much and we have got to put some responsibility on Sancho because he's he's not um faultless obviously and he didn't have a good game but we've got to try and we didn't it was well we couldn't do it against Brentford because of the um situation we found us, ourselves in 30 minutes into the game but we've got to try and get him more involved in games because th- that game and the Brighton game he was he was all, almost anonymous in both of them and I'm not sure how maybe it's the right centre mid as well because that's bit obviously that chopped and changed with McTominay first game and then Ericsson coming in the second in the second game but there needs to be a solution to get him more involved because he we've seen in periods last season and throughout times he was on the pitch in pre-season where which obviously we have to take with a pinch of salt but when he's involved in a game, Manchester United are playing better football. But it's just how, how oh, that, doubt. yeah, it's just how we get that to happen. And and like we've kind of both already said, with these teams pressing so highly and the intensity being higher, it's about evading that first press and then then your Diego Dallo, then your Christian Eriksen or Scott McTominay or potentially a Donny Van de Beek then that player can help um, help those on the right-hand side. And then you've got a bit more movement, potentially a bit more. The right-hand side will be a bit more involved, let's say. That was something that Ten Hag was really, made sure to mention it in pre-season, didn't he? I think he mentioned it um, twice where he wanted the team to be able to attack from the left, from the centre and the right. And United, and United fans are so used to not being able to t- attack on the right. <laughs> and we saw we saw it in pre-season and like, uh, like I said we've got to take it with a pinch of salt but it, it, the, the yeah. tactical elements are there that Diego Dallo can take that inverted role make those underlapping overlapping runs and then you can have that right centre mid but like, like we said it, it, the lack of being able to evade that pressure is just making it all null and void almost that what you were saying there, Kane. I think is also a reminder to me of just how important it is going to be for us to be able to effectively play out from under pressure. Because I completely agree with you that that is going to be something that more and more teams try and do against us now, because they've obviously seen there's a weakness there. But again, as I like to, to always say, every single tactical decision is a trade-off, right? There's no perfect tactics. You you benefit in one way, and then and you 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 lose out in another way. And you benefit, the benefit from pressing really high is, yeah, you have a chance to regain possession really high up the pitch. But as we were saying before, the downside of that is that you leave a lot more space in behind if, if the team can beat that first press. And so actually for someone like Sancho and same goes for Rashford on the other side, if we can become more effective at beating that first initial press, if we can get the ball to Sancho, he's probably going to have the ball in acres more space than he would ordinarily if a team is playing a deep block. Because we were just saying last week, Kay, with uh, Harry that... You know, against Brighton, for example, in the second half, every single time Sancho got the ball, he had two, three players to beat because Brighton was just sat in a low block at that point waiting for us to attack. 
But if teams are going to be a lot more aggressive in defence against us, that is an opportunity for someone like Sancho to have more space, to be able to have more freedom, to actually you know, be that creative force for us, which he is. But it, again, it all comes back to us needing to be able to effectively beat that pressure in the first place. I want to move on a little bit to, to talk more sort of big picture. But before we do that, Kane, you just wrote a great article about David De Gea and Man United's sort of mishandling of the goalkeeper situation and how... De Gea is sort of handling this. I want to I want to caveat this by saying De Gea is by no means the only culprit of the problems that we have, but it's probably the clearest example of the struggles with transitioning to Ten Hag. Why don't you uh, Why don't you go on a little bit about some of your thoughts on the the De Gea situation? Yeah, so it was easy to write something on De Gea, and it's it it probably seems a bit harsh because obviously he he didn't have a good game, and I think a lot of criticism has fallen his way and fair play to him for coming out after the game and kind of addressing that and admitting that he had a poor game and he kind of I think he said that he cost the team the point team the points with the first goal and potentially the second but the point that I wanted to get across and with this with the article which I wrote is essentially that the decision made I think it was a year ago obviously Dean Henderson went on his loan to Nottingham Forest and kind of came out of an interview with TalkSport where he revealed that he was told that he would be the starting keeper. And obviously we know that the COVID situation happened and he wasn't available for the start of the season. And then he returned and he never got it back because De Gea was playing well. But De Gea was playing well because United were playing poorly. I think you look at last season and De Gea was the saviour but quite often it was because United were just, as we've mentioned, defensive transitions. We were letting them go left, right, and centre, and it was kind of he. It was kind of a great situation for his type of goalkeeper, where he, as we've seen throughout the years, he's made wonderful saves in games. But he's had so many games where his best games come where there's eight, nine saves to make, and he's he's kind of always in the game. And that decision was made, I, I don't know whether that was, um, it was probably Solskjaer who made made the decision. And he made that because De Gea was playing well. But the decision kind of wasn't with long-term focus in mind. Because it, obviously, I guess from Solskjaer's perspective, he was probably thinking that he was going to try and turn the situation around and get United playing great football. And if not, there would be like I guess Ollie's obviously a fan of the club. He'd be wanting someone else to take over Ten Hag and start playing great football. And with all the top teams at the yeah. moment, you see that their goalkeepers are so involved in the build-up. They're active in their box. They're sweeping. And despite De Gea being probably the best shot stopper in Europe in the first half of last season we still did not see the improvements in those other areas of the game from his game. If we were seeing that shot-stopping ability added with improvement in the other areas, it might have been a different story, but it was it was almost like typical, typical De Gea, just sometimes creating his own problems with a lack of distribution and sometimes saving, a te- saving the team from their terrible mistakes themselves. But it was it wasn't with the long term. I, I think the main point was that it wasn't with that long term goal in mind that we would have in the next season a Ten Hag who wants to play 
this, like we've mentioned, playing out of the back. And in a in a, a time when so much of the focus is on people at the club other than Eric Ten Hag and just ha- the sort of the, ha- the hand that he's been dealt, which I think is good because that is ultimately the bigger issues. You know, the, the goalkeeper situation, I don't think could sum it up any more perfectly. You know, a goalkeeper whose profile, again, the quality might not be what we need. Henderson might have played and maybe we find out he's actually not good enough to be Man United's starting goalkeeper, which is, you know, it's eminently possible. But goalkeeper with the right profile and Ten Hag hasn't even got a chance to work with him because the club's handling of the situation has been so bad that Henderson wasn't even interested in, in meeting the new manager. You know, that just sums up the sort of the, the bad situation that Ten Hag has, has been dealt and the fact that he's, I think he's, he's having to try and fit square pegs in round holes at the moment, trying to get these players to play this system. It is the, the club's decision which has kind of impacted what Ten Hag's walked into. And yeah. I, do, I, I don't want, because we've seen in these opening games that it's not that that's not the only issue that <laughs> there's there's so many but i just thought that especially, especially with obviously henderson coming out and having that very very good performance for nottingham forest in their first premier league win in over two decades and then obviously the De Gea, it kind of seemed like it might have been a little bit of potentially a cheap shot to go for it but i thought that it was just a good a, a good example right now of one of the reasons why ten hag is kind of having a port having a difficult start to life at old trafford yeah 100% and that brings us sort of nicely onto some of the bigger picture issues and there's sort of two things i think that are really important to get to here one is transfers we've obviously got about 2 weeks left of the summer transfer window and we can talk a little bit about what we might want to see and what United might start doing. I think probably the the other part of it, and maybe more interesting, because I, I personally just get bored of talking about transfers, is sort of tactically, where does where does Ten Hag go from here? So I think firstly, let's talk about transfers a little bit, Kane. Obviously, there's been a lot of rumours around United. We've had the Rabiot and Arnautovic circle. Rabiot was progressing and supposedly United haven't agreed personal terms yet. I guess whether it's names or just profiles of players, in a in a, a minute or so, what what do United need to do in the next couple of weeks, realistically? Report from um, Jason Burt of the Telegraph, I believe, mentioned that Ten Hag is looking for two midfielders and a forward, and I I, I kind of think that that is the bare minimum that we do need. Um, I feel like I don't want to mention the dreaded Frankie De Jong name. <laughs> any more <laughs> any more than I have to but obviously that would be if well I mean I don't think anyone knows what's going on with that transfer anymore it probably it looks a bit it looks less likely to happen now than it did uh, last month let's say but if that if that if that deal could somehow happen I think we'd be in a much stronger position because that is the exact well it's the exact player that Ten Hag wants and Rabio, uh, I, I haven't watched much of him in Italy at all, really. But from what everyone says, it's kind of a negative kind of story there. But I think if you're getting in a player in midfield, which is of the quality to be starting, I think the more important second midfielder is there for the depth and just making sure yeah. you get a body in there. With the versatile... That, that, that's what, what I've sort of said about Rabio, like... I don't think Rabiot is great, but if it's Rabiot plus someone else and that someone else is is a better quality and a starting midfielder, I, I'm not 
wholly opposed to Rabiot on the pitch. His character concerns me slightly more. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's that is the warning sign with with his signing, I guess. And yeah, I mean, you can start. You you can tell that Ten Hag is starting to get a bit agitated. Like a bit agitated. You've se- we've, I think we've seen in a couple of the post match interviews and a, a couple of the um, press conferences that he started to kind of we need we need signings now and to, but, <laughs> yeah. hopefully I mean maybe we'll look back and think well maybe if we won the first two games um, convincingly they might have not got the um, extra signings in but I guess we'll never know. <laughs> well that's that's what I thought was going to happen after the Brighton game and then like I said last week I woke up and it was Rabiot and Arnautovic which wasn't exactly what I was expecting I mean yeah two midfielders and a forward I couldn't really agree more don't really have too much more to add on that if anyone wants to wants a, to a really good read of sort of how Ten Hag is having to adapt and react to maybe sort of unexpectedly poor start there's a great article by Melissa Reddy on Sky Sports um, just about sort of Ten Hag dealing with these really mentally fragile players, I think was, was different to what he expected. And I guess sort of on that, to move on to the second part of this sort of bigger picture discussion, tactically, where, where do United go from here? There's been a, a, a real sort of buzz phrase in the media this week and in the build-up to the Brentford game that things might need to get worse before they get better. And I understand the sentiment behind that, you know, the idea that this is going to be a sort of painful bedding in process as these players learn Ten Hag's system and he figures out who can effectively transition to his system and who can't. Like we just said, sort of fitting square pegs into round holes a little bit there. But things can only get so much worse, can't they, Kane? Like if United continue with this sort of form, there is going to come a point where it can't go on like this anymore. And so from Ten Hag's perspective, to what degree do you stick to your principles, believe in your system and just try and make the players function in it or do you have to start adapting for what the players can do maybe go away from some of the principles that he is he sort of built his career on yeah like you said it's I mean those fir- those first two games if you were I don't think many supporters think we thought we would have lost both of those and now we're coming into a situation where we've got probably the most difficult one of the most difficult games of the season and if we come we're I mean, an optimist, an, an, an optimist would probably say a draw would be an amazing result. So, well, hey, I mean, as we're recording this, Crystal Palace are beating Liverpool. Oh wow! Having said that, we might be a worse team than Crystal Palace. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we could be like a. I mean, a realistic situation could be we're we're going into game week four with zero or potentially one point, and I mean, three points would be amazing, but. <laughs> It's so, like you said, it's the Premier League. It's it's a, it's kind of a different animal. And then when you're manager of Manchester United, it's kind of amplified ten times. So it is going to be. I I feel like it's going to have to be a mix. I don't agree that we should abandon these tactics because then we then what was the point of bringing bringing the manager in? He he's obviously got these. We we brought him in for a reason, and he's got these different principles in his play, and. I did note uh, shout out to United Arena on um, Twitter because I did notice after the game the other day he he was uh, quick to mention that in Pep Guardiola's first season with City there was a um, a four 0 loss to Everton and in Liverpool's first season with Jurgen Klopp I think there was a a three 0 loss like the team escaped me but it was it was um, one of the teams at the lower end of the table and there like you said there are that the, those games can happen when you're at the start of this kind of transition, it's just about now 
it's about now that those games have come for us in the first two fixtures. So we've kind of got to adapt, but we we can't stray away from his 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 philosophy, his kind of how he wants the team to play. I think the main two problems that we we've been seeing it just in the two games and kind of I mean we're we're, we're kind of reverting back to last season how we were playing and the two main problems then and now I'd say are individual mistakes and defensive transitions and I guess individual mistakes is a, is a little hard to kind of fix because it's kind of you've just got to improve that kind of like we said when you're under pressure you've got to get it's kind of hard to improve that from a manager's perspective at least it's kind of it just kind of comes with time I guess but I would say that a free, uh, I think a few fans are kind of suggesting this where do we kind of move to that free at the back system just to alleviate that, that potentially alleviate that defensive transition problem? Yeah. Because that is, I mean, we, I think we saw it with Chelsea once Tuchel came over, obviously has stuck since then. But I think the main, when they first moved, it was kind of to, improve that defence and make sure that they were kind of solid solid at the back. We saw it yeah. with um, Mikel Arteta's arsenal. Well, and weirdly, despite how we're talking about United's defensive transitions being so bad, probably in terms of the squad strength, defence is probably where we are strongest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You'd think, I mean, you would think that it does kind of make sense where you think you wouldn't really want Varane, Maguire or um, Martinez, obviously, to be sitting sitting on the bench. So having those three there it could work well for now I don't think it's a long-term solution at all I don't think um, Ten Hag would probably want to go to that three at the back in the long term but with this situation that he finds him in finds himself in right now it might be the best solution yeah I, I think I think three at the back makes some sense I would be I would be very surprised if by the end of August we haven't seen at least one of three at the back or Martinez playing in midfield. I think one of those is very likely to happen as a as a response to try and improve some of these deficiencies that we're talking about without completely compromising the principles that Eric Ten Hag wants to build this squad with. Because you still can be a possession-based team, you still can play out from the back in the way that Ten Hag wants in those formations, but... They are little tweaks that might help cover some of those weaknesses. The The question mark, though, is obviously three at the back. The trade-off is up front. You obviously then lose positions for the likes of Sancho, Rashford, Ronaldo, Martial. Maybe that's not the end of the world, good based on their form so far at the start of the season. And the other trade-off with Martinez in midfield is that I'm pretty sure Ten Hag dropped Martinez when he was playing in midfield at Ajax, which eventually led to him coming back in as a centre-back. So... We'll see what happens there. Before we go into the Liverpool game, I'm going to throw it to Harry, who, despite being on holiday, his dedication to the youth and loan is so strong that he's still recorded a roundup for you from Budapest. I'll give you a very quick youth and loan update while I'm on the move as well. United's under-21s followed a disappointing but decent enough performance away at Arsenal, a 3-1 opening day loss with a really chastening 5-1 defeat to Crystal Palace at home. Um, a real shock of a game from the goalkeeper Dermot Mee. The Northern Irishman who made a couple of errors and really should have been sent off for the way he reacted to one of them as well. Um, United lost their heads in moments. Charlie Savage was impressively 
composed throughout actually. Charlie Wellens did well. He scored a great free kick in the opening game against Arsenal and did well in this one. Cobby Miner, even though he's only 17, was another who stood out for not having a bad game. Um, you know, it did create some chances in the opening stages and had a lot of possession. But yeah, individual mistakes at the back really caused uh, heads to drop at times and concede far too many goals. Um, United's only goal came from Savage. A really nice um, low finish into the bottom corner from the edge of the box after being teed up by Charlie McNeil. The under-18s haven't started their season yet. They play for the first time this weekend at home to Nottingham Forest, who they beat in the FA Youth Cup final at the end of last season, you'll remember. Uh, still the same coach, Travis Binion. And in terms of loan news, Alvaro Fernandez enjoyed a really good debut, or a really good first start. He had played twice before off the bench. Enjoyed a really good first start from Preston North End. Was described as, I think, impeccable and fantastic by manager Ryan Lowe as he got two assists in the opening half before being taken off um, with a minor injury. He just rolled his ankle a bit, and so hopefully he'll carry on playing well in that left wing-back position for North End. Uh, he's competing for that position with ex-United player Robbie Brady. And on the other side of the fence, Ethan Laird has joined Queen's Park Rangers in the Championship on loan. OK, Kane... Oh, Liverpool at home, up next. Obviously, some harrowing memories of this fixture from last season, home and away. How, how do you expect United to approach this? How should United approach it? And what, what can we realistically hope for? Because <laughs> I think we're all, we're all dreading this one a little bit. Be surprised if we do... Like, obviously, we mentioned in the previous section, the three at the back. I would be quite surprised if, he doesn't, if Ten Hag doesn't go with it for this game because... I mean, what other game would you go would you go go it for um, if not Liverpool, yeah. especially with um, like you said the memories from last season. With expectations, I think the one of the most important things, and I don't, I think with with this game, I don't think we should be focusing on the result or getting the three points. <laughs> Obviously, it sounds it sounds bad, but I think the main thing that we should be expecting is how. United will react if Liverpool get that first goal because I think in I think it was against uh, against Brighton there was 9 minutes between the first and second goal and against Brentford there was 8 minutes and that's just that that is really poor and especially I mean against this Liverpool and side himself after the game said against Brentford I feel like it cost my team the the game because as soon as I conceded that first goal our heads are gone Exactly yeah and it's just, I think, if we're able to see, I mean, I don't, I, I'm not saying that I want us to concede, but if we're able to see us concede a goal and then rally together and perform, and perform well following that, I mean, that would be some encouraging signs. And I think the main thing we want to see from this game is encouraging signs, whether it's whether that comes in the form of a victory or a draw, let's hope so. But after the two opening performances being such poor overall team showings, I think this game, if we're able to, I mean, I'd hope that we're able to nick a draw. And if we're able to show a bit of, a bit of what Ten Hag is trying to install into these players, it would be a positive. Yeah. On Liverpool, I, well, another uh, another approach. Uh, obviously, I mentioned the three at the back, but I did think that they have. Uh, I'm not sure um, 
how how they're looking against um against who are they Palace. playing Palace sorry yeah I don't know how they're looking about against Palace but in the opening opening weekend they didn't look the strongest in the middle of the park and obviously I think if you asked a Liverpool fan they'd probably be a bit a little bit wary about their situation there especially after Thiago um got injured in in that fixture whether United try and do something similar to what Brighton did against us, where they did kind of just fill that kind of central area, didn't they? And that, that kind of was, was one of the reasons why they um, were able to dominate against us and um, win that game. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this is the nature of playing good teams, isn't it? That any decision that you make to, to try and stop one avenue of, of vulnerability for your own team leads to another. I think... Personally, I'd probably favour three at the back over packing the midfield just because I think the midfield being Liverpool's weakest area, I'd almost be tempted to sort of say, you know what, go on then, beat us. And if you beat us through midfield, so be it. But I'd rather take the risk of Fabinho, Milner and Henderson, let's say, or maybe Harvey Elliott beating us through midfield than, say, then nullifying those players and allowing the likes of Robertson, Alexander-Arnold, Salah, Diaz, you know, a space out wide. So... I think that's why three at the back is, is tempting to me because you can have the full-backs, to, the wing-backs of the back five to match up with Liverpool's full-backs, the wide centre-backs to match up with uh, the two wide forwards from Liverpool. But it's a tough game. I think what I am most looking for here, rather than tactically, is just mentally how the players approach this. Because I think, I said, that Melissa Reddy article that I mentioned earlier, go and read it. It's a great example or a great insight into the mental fragility of, of this team and, and how much of a shock that has been to Ten Hag since pre-season. And I think Old Trafford is going to be on an absolute knife edge next Monday because obviously it's still a Liverpool game and the crowd is going to be up for it. The atmosphere is going to be loud and the, the, the fans will be right behind the team as they were, to be fair. Credit, as always, to United's brilliant away fans right the way through the Brentford game. But... I think a fast start from Liverpool and if we concede in an early goal, it, things could turn ugly at Old Trafford very quickly. And I think responding to that, dealing with it, but also stopping that from getting to a point where it's that bad is going to be really important and tough mentally for this United team to do. OK, Kane, I think that is pretty much all we've got time for. A slightly longer episode today. I've not quite got Harry's timekeeping skills and you know we had, I think this was a, uh, a little bit cathartic, hopefully, for both of us, Kane, to, to get out all of these thoughts about United. And I always find doing the podcast helps me deal with some of these uh, bad performances because it forces me to think a bit more logically about them. So I hope that you found the same as well. Thank you so much for, for joining us. I'm hope, sure you'll be back throughout the season as we do two episodes a week now. You'll be back, and hopefully, on some of the midweek episodes to go through some games later on in the season. Yeah, thanks for having me on, mate. I'll, hopefully, I'll, I'll go through the midweek games, and hopefully, we've got a few um, fixtures which I think we can win on those ones. Maybe some, maybe some nice early Europa League group stage fixtures will be good. <laughs> Kane, if anyone wants to hear more from you on United and, and look at the the great articles that you write, where can they find you on Twitter? On Twitter, my at is Kane Smith M U. That is Kane spelt C A I N, uh, the unorthodox way, but. Yeah, find me on there and also obviously look out for United District, UTD District on Twitter where we're obviously providing the latest news and linking to our articles where we kind of give our opinions on different different um, areas of United and also cover different aspects of news on there. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff over at United District. Go drop them a follow 
You can find Harry on Twitter at HarryRobinson64. Once he gets back from Budapest, you can find the podcast on Twitter at UTDWeeklyPod. That is P-O-D at the end there. And you can find myself on Twitter at UTDTate, T-A-I-T. Thank you as always so much for, for listening. Patrons, unfortunately there won't be a Q&A this week. We'll wait and do that once Harry is back and we'll give you a bumper version next week. So get those questions in and we'll have an extra long Patreon Q&A for you next week after the Liverpool game. Thank you again so much for watching and fingers crossed next week we talk to you in a more positive mood. Goodbye. Podcast Network.